Last week, we told you an awful tale of a Thanksgiving meal gone wrong. But this week, we will be diving into an even more tragic tale around a holiday table. I'm Christina. And I'm Kristen. And today on The Real Crime Podcast, we will be telling you all about the plight of 11 victims and one home purchaser who would get more than she bargained for. We will be discussing the Hamilton, Ohio, Easter Sunday Massacre. was 2008. I'm going to try that again. <laughs> it was 2008 and Cinnamon Baker, probably the best name of all time. Yeah, I don't know why that's not in like all the Christmas movies. I know. Cinnamon Baker? Come on. she's She should be everybody's best friend in every Hallmark movie. Cinnamon I just, Baker. I love that name. Best name. So she's getting ready to close on her new home. It was a bargain, to say the least. In fact, Cinnamon would pay only $54,000 for it. Wow. I know. The two-bed, one-bath home at 635 Minor Avenue in Hamilton, Ohio, was unassuming. Small yard, small home, just the perfect size for her and her two children aged nine and four. Then, before she had officially closed on the property... Her boyfriend's co-worker asked if she knew about the house, its history, and specifically the name James Rupert. She didn't, so she started Googling. The first thing she saw when she typed his name, her new address of 635 Minor Avenue. The more she dug in, the deeper into the gory details she fell. Having come this far in the purchase process, Cinnamon decided to go back to the house and take another look at it. You see, when she did all that deep digging, she discovered why the name's Jane, why the name James Rupert was so familiar and why her home was such a bargain. I don't understand why she didn't think about that before. Like why it was so cheap. Right. I that's not <laughs> I normal. Obviously something terrible happened. You're there. like, why is this so inexpensive? And they're like, well, <laughs> and if you look at the purchase prop, pre- like the purchase history, mm-hmm. which I'll get into, it's like such a bargain. So, so James Rupert, let's talk about him, shall we? He was the second born to Leonard and Charity Rupert in 1934. The first child was also a boy, Leonard Jr. And Charity made it very clear that she would have preferred her second child to be a girl instead of James. That's always sad. It's sad. That doesn't make for a good upbringing. No, no. And it doesn't matter because they're still your child. Like, I mean, people right. get so hung up on, like, what the the gender or the sex of the baby is going to be. And it's like, just, it doesn't matter. You're going to love them. And it's not like you can return them or exchange them if it's not the one that you want, you well, know? Like, you, you, 
you cannot return or exchange your children. Trust me. <laughs> as many times as I have looked at Cosette and been like, man, why did I do this? <laughs> so, no, it's uh, it's it's uh, the weirdest thing to me. But anyway, this for him, Charity's reaction to him was definitely a sign of things to come. So he was raised in a way that made it clear that he was unwanted and unloved. And needless to say, this sort of shaped the person he would become. You see, James was a small, slight child and grew into a small, slight man. His brother, Leonard Jr., was the light in his parents' eyes. Leonard Sr. had a wicked temper and an issue with drinking. Definitely something we've seen before. Makings of a serial killer. Exactly. I was just like, oh, my God. I mean, we literally have the the prototyping. Like, we have it all mapped out. I don't understand why people aren't like, hey, this is going to be a bad situation. Right. We're going to need to remove the children sooner rather than later, okay? Or Mom's he's going to grow up and people. Exactly. Mom's disinterested and dad drinks too much. Like, this is not a good combination, okay? I mean, to be fair, this happens in... Like, I don't know how I don't know any statistics about this, but a lot of families. It does. It and does. Most people don't grow up to kill sa- people. Right. But there's a chance. And I just feel like we should step in before the chance is taken, maybe, you know? So in 1947, when the boys were just 12 and 14 years old, Leonard Sr. would die unexpectedly. Leonard Jr. and James became the men of the house, and their childhood was quickly overshadowed with responsibility. Leonard Jr. quickly took to the role of father to James and picked on him incessantly. So that's not a fatherly role. Well, Leonard Sr., <laughs> it's the fatherly role that he knew. Yeah, yep. Because Leonard Sr. was really cruel and would pick on James all the time. And so Leonard Jr. was like, oh, this is what it is to be a dad. So this is what I'm going to do. How terrible. I know. It actually pushed James to attempt suicide at 16 and run away for a time. So things are not going well for him. James had really no love life and no social life and really loved the shooting range. It was a place that he excelled and he spent most of his free time. He was unemployed, after all, collecting different guns and practicing with them. A couple red flags. Yeah, yeah. Things that would definitely make me go, huh, this is not good. This is not good. (laughs) So James at one point had a girlfriend. The girlfriend went by the name of Alma. But when their relationship ended, Leonard Jr., James's older brother, stepped in and scooped up Alma. Leonard Jr. and Alma would eventually marry, only driving the wedge between James and his brother even deeper. You don't say. I mean, like, okay, Leonard Jr., there wasn't another girl. Right? You like, had you, to have that you one. You had to have <laughs> Alma. Like, we we had to do this. Then the pair would go on to have eight children together, which is just we'll an just obscene, that in. <laughs> obscene number of kids. And it's basically like, hey, James, I am having sex with your ex-girlfriend all the time. <laughs> All the time. We're having so many babies. So James is not in a good place, to say the least. Now, James, who was, like Kristen, still riding the struggle bus. um, (laughs) I mean, come on. You're definitely riding the struggle bus at least a little bit, right? A little bit. Yeah, I would like to let everyone know that it's the same day as last it episode, is. so it's not another struggle bus It's not like a week later, day. and she's still on the struggle bus. 
we just uh, sometimes we record back to back, especially around the holidays when things get crazy. Um, okay, so James, he is still riding the struggle ba- bus and he moves back in with, apparently I am too, mm-hmm. <laughs> he moves back in with his mother Charity and had pretty much all but accepted his defeat, you know, in this thing called life. Charity coddled him and treated him like a child, even though he was 41 at this point. Also, just a really, really healthy thing to have happen. It's now Easter Sunday, and the family was over at Charity's home. So James was there, but he was sleeping off his drinking from the night before. Because, again, his two hobbies included drinking and shooting Drinking and shooting things. Exactly, exactly. So, you see, he spent most of his evenings at a local bar. And the night before Easter, in particular, he had gone to drink off his frustration, which he aired to bartender Wanda Bishop. He spent the evening complaining about his mother and his family, telling her he would have to take care of the problem sooner rather than later. Now, I'm sure Wanda didn't think much of this. You know, she was probably thinking, oh, maybe he's going to move out and like get his life together or something. I, I don't know. If someone said those words to me, I'd be like, what, what do you mean by that? What are you going to do? <laughs> right. I'm going to ask <laughs> Let's questions. dive a little deeper here. <laughs> exactly. I, I have some free time here at the bar. Why don't you tell me all of the details of your plan? He actually left at one point and came back and said, like, he hadn't taken care of the problem and but he was going to soon, you know, which is again, weird. all the questions, so many questions. <laughs> so at this point, um, it's about four o'clock in the afternoon and James finally woke up from his hangover and ventured downstairs into the home where children ranging from four to 17, because remember, there were eight of them were cracking open their plastic eggs and counting their candy. You look yeah, like you want to say something. probably not the best way to wake up with a hangover. Oh, oh, I I mean, no. I, I would be so annoyed. Kids, kids and hangovers, not a good combination. Not at all. No. So James engaged in a brief conversation with his brother, Leonard Jr. They talked about the stock market, of all things. Fun. I f- <laughs> I feel like James was not really that engaged in the stock market. <laughs> just a personal opinion. I don't know. Maybe it was his third hobby. He just didn't talk about it. And then Leonard asked James about his VW, his Volkswagen. Now, in recent weeks, James had been having mechanical issues with his Volkswagen. And for whatever reason, he was convinced that somehow the issues were being caused by his brother, Leonard. So that makes sense. Right. And so when this comment comes out of Leonard's mouth, James is just like snaps, like mentally cracks, you know. And he saw this as just like a low blow, total jab at his expense. He sort of ignored the question, didn't answer it. And instead, he announced that he was going to head to the range for a bit. So he went up to his bedroom and collected four different weapons, three handguns and a rifle. He came back down and instead of exiting the home, he shot Leonard Jr. in the head and then turned and shot his ex-girlfriend, Leonard's wife, Alma. His mother, Charity, lunged at him, and he shot her in the chest. From there, he killed David, Teresa, and Carol, three of the Rupert children who had rushed into the kitchen to figure out what was going on. Unassumingly, the other children were still sitting in the living room, likely confused as to what was happening. 
James entered and one by one, he shot the remaining five children. It's believed that at least two of the children ran for the door and almost made it, but were gunned down before they could escape. It actually only took him about two minutes to wipe out his entire family members. Surrounded by 11 dead bodies, all but Alma shot at least twice to ensure their death. James would spend the next three hours in the home. That's like, why though? That's always the creepiest thing to me when they just like hang out and with the dead bodies calmly. Yeah. Surround themselves with death. So bizarre. So finally, around 7 p.m., James called the police and calmly said, there's been a shooting. Then he waited at the front door of the house for the police to arrive. He refused to cooperate with authorities, which is really strange because he called the cops, you know, like he called them there. And it was definitely clear that he would opt for an insanity defense. Now, the the authorities at the scene said that there was so much blood, it was literally dripping through the floorboards into the basement. Um, Yeah, that's crazy. That's, Mm -hmm. That's a lot of blood. So much. So 35 rounds in total had been unloaded at the scene. The home was opened to a uh, to the public a year after the massacre in the spring of 1976. And then the basically the interior contents were auctioned off. From there, they cleaned the home, laid down new carpeting and rented it to an unsuspecting out of town family. The family left early, stating that they would hear odd sounds and disembodied voices, and this went on for quite some time. So they weren't the only people who I think were tricked into living there. As for James Rupert, he was immediately found insane. But on his second trial, um, he wasn't immediately found insane, excuse me. But on his second trial, he finally was given the insanity defense that he was looking for. However, he was still given prison time. So James Rupert's plan, he he basically thought that if he could get into a mental health facility, that eventually he would be released and could collect the family accounts totaling around $300,000, which would be more than a million dollars today. Instead, he was given consecutive life sentences to serve in prison. He actually remained in prison until his death earlier this year in June of 2022. He was up for parole a couple of times, I believe. Yes. Uh, 1995, I think, yes. was one of the times. Um, and then he would have been up again if he had lived Yes, in 2025. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. I don't understand how you could ever possibly be, be up, up for, for parole, parole after killing 11 people. I mean, I, I really, I don't always understand our judicial system. I really don't. So in 2022, apparently he died of natural causes. There was no like real cause of death it just says like you know he passed away essentially i think he was in like a convalescent area where he was uh um what are those um not hospitals they're hospice hospice there we go um he was in like the hospice area of a hospital and that's where he passed so back to cinnamon baker if we remember it's now 2008 and she did indeed end up going on to complete the purchase of his former home. In fact, outside from uh, outside from the dark history, it was actually a little while before she noticed anything different about this home compared to other homes that she'd been in. From the basement, 
she finally noticed after living there for a while that you could see blood pooling and stains that had soaked through the floorboards after the massacre. They didn't want to replace that. They did not replace any of the floorboards. They just carpeted over it, you know? So I'm sure a lot of people, because I get this question a lot in the world of real estate, a lot of people are probably saying, why wasn't she notified? How come no one told her? And technically speaking, the home had had at least two owners previously. There was a deed signed, and this is like from public record what I'm finding. So it may there may even be some additional people as well. There was a deed signed in 1999 for a whopping $6,860. Not a month, just in total? Just in total. Somebody purchased the property for under $7,000. And I even wrote a note, no, you did not forget numbers on that. Because I was like, did I write that wrong? No, it's that small of <laughs> a number. Crazy. Yeah, under 10, never... under 10 grand. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> There's, yeah. And, and that was in 1999, too. So it's not even like it was, I don't know. The thirties. That, that is still a long time <laughs> oh, ago. It, yeah, I mean, <laughs> don't remind me. Uh, then, not a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> then another owner from two thousand and four purchased the house for just under twenty five thousand. Then Miss Cinnamon Baker purchased the property. Now there are some states that have regulations where a purchaser must be told historical details of a home, especially a death or murder. However, there's so many loopholes in those regulations. Sometimes the agents who are selling the properties don't even know that someone died or was murdered in a space. And unfortunately, you know, like homes don't come with like these history books. You know, they don't have like scrapbooks that come with them to tell right. everything that and happened. Realtors, I'm sure, are not googling. I've never once Googled an address to find out if someone died in it. Maybe you should. I mean, maybe I should. I could probably market it in a totally different way. And be like, somebody died here. You should totally check it out. You can it's pass awesome. out our cards, too. Exactly. Be <laughs> if, like, you're if, you, if you're into this, you should totally listen to our podcast. Um, so Cinnamon, dear Cinnamon, stayed in the home until just recently. So she bought in 2008. And then, in fact, she just sold the property on November 1st. So, like, literally a few weeks ago of this year, 2022. The property was purchased for $80,000. And it honestly makes me wonder if the new owners are going to have the same surprise that Cinnamon did. Yeah, because that's still really low. Right. And it's but I mean, it's sort of average for the area. What are we doing? What are we doing here in Connecticut? (laughs) I don't know. I I mean, I ask myself that question like at least three times a week. So I always say we, we pay for what we get i mean we have all the seasons but then again this is in ohio and like there's no ocean there's no you're right you're right there's big lakes it's close to big lakes we just did an episode on big lakes okay not going in them but they're natural they're natural big okay so it's okay it's a little better it's a little better they have waves and currents and still prefer the ocean (laughs) it's fair super fair so like many homes of this nature the google street view of the house is blurred however it can be seen on sites like Realtor.com and Redfin because it was <laughs> so recently on the market. Kind of ridiculous. Why is it blurred on Google? Because so uh, I think because it was a, like a tragedy a house or okay, something. Okay, but you can still you can see s- inside the house. It's true. It's true. You can. You can. <laughs> More it's, intrusive. <laughs> it's super intrusive. And like there are definitely like news articles with photos of the bloodstained right. floorboards and everything. And they are black and white. But- it's true. 
It's true. But I, you can see them in color on Realtor.com. <laughs> I just, I'm trying to get into the mindset of whomever purchased this property and was like, ooh, I wonder what it looks like on Google Earth. Like, And then they Google it and the property's all blurred out. And they're like, huh, I wonder that's why. weird. I wonder why that happens. Because clearly they don't listen to our podcast. So they don't know that somebody died there because that's what it means. And super disturbing. Yeah. I would be pretty disturbed if I Googled my house and, and it was blurred it was out. Blurred out. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> like I would really like Google Earth to come around to my house and update the photos because it's still like pre foreclosure in, in, in our photos. And I mean, if anybody, yes, this is where I live, <laughs> right? If anybody Google Earths my house, my address right now, they're they're literally going to be like, "Wow, she lives in a total shithole," and I don't because that's not what it looks like anymore, but. When we bought this place, it was basically just a pit that should have sunk back into the earth, honestly. So it was good times. Good times. But that's that's it. That's our episode. So kicking off the uh, Christmas season with an Easter episode. Yeah, makes sense. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe we should have saved this one for April. I, I couldn't, though, because <laughs> next week's episode ties into this. And so all of this came from... Um, that Facebook group that mm-hmm. I follow where someone like posted something about this. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so crazy. And it'll literally make you say, like, what's wrong with people? What's wrong with this street? What's wrong with this town? All of those questions are going to run through your head. So can't wait for next week. I know it's really good. Definitely stay tuned for next week. OK, we'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye.